Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Mary Jo Klinker, an activist, agitator, and assistant professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Winona State University in Minnesota. How's it going, Mary Jo? Pretty good. I have to say, you're one of my favorite people that I've only known for a few weeks. Oh, I appreciate that a lot. Thanks. <laughs> uh, just so all the listeners know, uh, you, you and I live in the same town. Uh, we have common friends, but we hadn't actually met until uh, sometime within the last few months. And uh, and I see you at, at yoga class once in a while. So uh, th- this is a, a personal conversation about topics that you know better than anyone else that I get to talk to on a regular basis. So this is going to be fun for me. So let's talk first briefly about what it is that you do. Like, what's your day job? Um, So I've been an assistant professor at Winona State University for five years. And my area of research and specialization is in queer theories and politics. And I like to make my my life, my personal life joined with my political life in the sense that I'm a community organizer as well on issues of gender-based violence and um, anti-white supremacy movements as well as prison abolition work. All of which I want to talk about. Whatever conservative listeners I have are going to love this episode. <laughs> I, I don't have demographic numbers. I assume. Ah. I assume. But... Um, <laughs> so, um, I guess the, the first thing that I really wanted to talk to you about, and, and I had been searching for someone to come on for this reason is the me too movement. Mm-hmm. So is this something that, uh, you're talking about in a scholastic environment? Absolutely. Okay. Community to work with student advocates who uh, address sexual violence on our campus culture. So the Me Too movement really resonates with them. And I think that it's important for us to have discussions in the classroom utilizing um, scholars and activists as the um, constructors of knowledge because there's been a lot that has been maligned against the movement. So I guess for me, the most important thing and point that I hope people take from the discussion of Me Too is that it actually originated over a decade ago from an activist, Tarana Burke, in 2007, and she was working in the South with young girls of color, and she herself is a black woman, and um, really started the concept of the Me Too movement as a way to create empowerment through empathy and a way to heal communities of color from racial violence and sexual violence. And a lot of that has been lost in the mainstream translations of it. Would you like me to say more about that? Uh, yes, please, please okay. continue. Yeah. Yeah. I, will, I will save my questions for a little bit. Okay. Um, the contemporary iteration of it is obviously through the hashtag platform. And uh, Alyssa Milano, who's an activist, I mean, an, well, yeah, an activist at this point, but an actress, used the hashtag in 2017 to report her own experiences with sexual harassment and assault that had really been normalized in Hollywood. Obviously, at this point, we know about Harvey Weinstein. We know about um, Bill Cosby. We know about a number of men who have, Kevin Spacey, who have used sexualized violence against women, 
boys, girls, men, and um, gender nonconforming people. So while Me Too has been really reduced to just a movement of um, women's voices against sexual violence that has been perpetrated by men, it is definitely a much broader um, discussion. I do feel like that discussion, I, I have watched many men who try to empathize be just shut down um, in an online sphere, even though and they're not like these are men who have suffered, who who also feel me too. not the guys that are just like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I get some of the criticism of those tweets that I see. But I do feel like it is very much if you're not a woman who has been oppressed by a man in power, you don't get to be part of this particular hashtag. Yeah, I think I think I refer to this as like uh, policing or politic policing, and it's not beneficial to coalition building and movements. And it's really unfortunate that that's a byproduct by some people's interpretations of their own individual viewpoints on feminism, because for me, I guess I, we could have even started here. Feminism is a movement to end sexist oppression and its intersecting violences. So that includes everyone, including men who live under repressive regimes of masculinity. And um, <clears throat> we know that because of toxic forms of masculine behavior, that boy children are sexually violated by other men and other boys as a way to police their own gendered behavior. And so to, to leave them out of the conversation really does a disservice to the larger anti-gender-based violence movement because we all actually have a role in healing. Okay. Define uh, sexually violated. Whew, a topic. Um, <clears throat> so sexual harassment of boys and, you know, Adolescent men can come in ways like grabbing each other sexually. I mean, I hear about this a lot when I'm teaching masculinity studies or, quote, dude, you're a fag, which is actually, um, as the scholar C.J. Pascoe, who's a sociologist, talks about it, uh, is really not about policing sexual behavior so much as gender identity. But it can also be overt forms of violence like um, sexual assault in the locker room. And we know that the... Um, the number one perpetrator of of boys and men are also other other men and other boys. So we're not talking about this like equal culture where women and girls are sexually violating men at the, and boys at the same number that that women are experiencing sexual violence at the hands of men. Sure. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as a side note, uh, pretty much every beating I took in high school started with faggot as a prefix. Absolutely. And I mean, it. I'd like to say that I think it's changing, but I just taught contemporary masculinities and popular culture last semester with a lot of 19-year-old students. And high school doesn't sound that dissimilar to the experiences you and I had. And as a femme-identified woman, I... I guess my sexual and gendered harassment was usually like lesbian baiting, like you're a dyke or a bitch. But... Um, Boy children, I would say, experience far more gendered discrimination around the fluidity of their identities than girls do. And actually, I'm not just saying that. That's a that's a basic theory of gender studies. Um, J. Jack Culverstam has talked about this and a number of trans scholars that boys are 
forced into a box that's much more limited than girlhood, which is a little more permeable. They're, they're, they're literally beaten into a box. Absolutely. Yeah. You do not and, step outside of that box. You don't show up to high school in, uh, with mascara on just to see what happens. <laughs> I mean, I, I personally want to live in a world where you do, but I, I also understand that. Yeah. I mean, as much progress as we've made in gender liberation for, um, gender autonomy of individuals, we continue to see gendered policing, which comes in forms of overt violence as well as um, verbal harassment. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned a couple of the big names that kind of started the Me Too movement, the men. Um, it has it has gone on mm-hmm. and there has been a uh, basically compared to uh, what's happened in the past, it's been a tsunami of exposure of this kind of behavior. Absolutely. And more recently, it has started to dive down into uh, more accessible, like the rape culture itself, uh, with the with the story of like Aziz Ansari. Uh, it, it became, I think, his story, the story told about his behavior was something that most of us can be like, yeah, I, I know people who do that. Mm-hmm. Or or even, yeah, I, that sounds familiar to me personally. Uh, it got down to, you don't have to be a person in power. All you have to do is be a guy on a date. Yeah. To be guilty of this kind of uh, pressure and uh, it, creation of this this environment. So uh, I, this will continue into a, a further question, but please go ahead and comment on this. Yeah, this is actually a really important part of the commentary. So you use the term rape culture. So I guess two things. It would be useful, I think, for this discussion to define how feminists are looking at that and anti-rape advocates or activist. Um, <clears throat> so Susan Brown Miller in the late 1970s is the first woman in the United States to um, theorize and articulate that rape culture is based in power. It's not this biologically determinist um, need, so all men are therefore inherently bad, but it's a part of the social structure of patriarchal violence. And as the movement to end gender-based violence has continued, rape culture has a few like basic components when I'm teaching that I like to talk about, which is rape and other forms of gender-based violence are common. So we knew that roughly 20% of, of women experience sexual violence in their lifetime. Um, rape and other forms of gender-based violence are tolerated, um, meaning that it becomes the norm, because I think that's actually what the Me Too movement is doing, is try to denaturalize what has become so deeply normative, which is why it's caused such a backlash as well. And I think I can talk a little bit more about that with the responses to the Aziz Ansari story. But victim blaming and racist rape myths abound. So, I mean, the origins of rape culture in the United States are inseparable to the uh, white supremacist and colonizing violence of the United States. We know that rape is a tool of war that was used by a colonist and um, indigenous women to this day experience the highest rates of sexual violence. And um, images of sexual violence are oftentimes uh, prolific in media culture and to the point that we actually accept them as titillating at times. I mean, horror 
obviously does this, like horror film genres. And finally, women and trans people don't have full economic and political equality with cisgender men. So like if we take that as the basis, it creates the fertile ground for sexual violence. And um, I really think that's where the narrative for Me Too is going. When men, like you say, like the tweets that have been in response, when men say things like, if Aziz Ansari is um, a sexual predator, so am I. And it sounds horrifying, but actually that might be getting closer to the discussion because we have so normalized sexual violence that women internalize what their what their role is in sexual experiences and men have internalized what their role are role is in a heterosexual sexual experience, which honestly is a recipe for really bad sex and um, and sexual <laughs> violence and sexual violence. So um, I think that's a important place to start. So with the, oh yeah, go ahead. I, I, I had the same reaction, not that I suddenly felt like I was a rapist, but reading the story, my first reaction was, holy crap. Like if, if this is, um, if this is basically, you know, reprehensible behavior, then I think most men are reprehensible, which at first was a highly like it offended me. Um, I, uh, to be honest, my first reaction, much like it was when Franken went down, like I, I was offended. He was a hero of mine. And my reaction was anger. Um, mm-hmm. this, this isn't fair. This is just what people do. Um, and then, you know, I had time to examine myself on that and realize, yeah, that's the problem. So, yeah, I think that's a great point because, um, Things that teach us something make us uncomfortable. Right. And I think we're in a really <laughs> uncomfortable moment. And we're uncomfortable because we're um, a sex-shaming culture. And so in order for us to have really healthy, consentful boundaries and know how to interact with one another, it means having conversations about what is rape culture, what do we, how do we feel when we have certain in, um, experiences. And we're just not there, which is why Me Too... Uh, is experiencing a backlash because you're not the only one that got angry. <laughs> a well, lot of people are angry. But is the backlash a necessary part of the process? Yes, I think it's a both and, if that makes sense. Yeah, like it, it's both, it does, and I agree. It's both a bla- backlash and a movement forward. I don't think, and I mean, I'm not the only one saying this by any means, but it it cannot be separated that we currently have a person in office who has 20 sexual harassment and assault allegations and quite literally stated, um, you know, this video was released in late October about quote, grab them by the pussies. Like the reason that we're seeing such a groundswell of, of breaking the silence of patriarchal violence is because it's abounding right now. Um, and, I think your point is really great about needing to have these conversations. Like I appreciate that as a cisgender man, you're having this conversation with me as a, as a woman. Um, and it's a conversation that I've had to have with a lot of men in my life that I care about. And, um, and a lot of them haven't been good conversations. Like they haven't felt good. Like we both feel the same way. And what it really, uh, has reiterated for me are, is that, we are socialized completely differently and our gender communication and our concerns are just drastically different because of the sexist culture we live in. So 
I mean, a lot like you, I just got done teaching that class, Masculinity and Popular Culture, where I taught Sherman Alexie, who, um, you know, I just found out in the last week, has also now had multiple allegations by Native women against him for um, sexual um, harassment. And uh, Aziz Ansari, I taught Master of None as an example (laughs) of Asian American men doing uh, feminist work in popular culture. And I mean, it, it pisses me off that I did that. But it also says to me that it's so normalized that we need to be having these conversations. So the Aziz Ansari example is really interesting because I, I think that for me was, as a white woman who does anti-racist work, like a really big uh, breaking point to talk about, about the fact that that sexism intersects with white supremacy. And when the grace piece came out, a lot of people responded to it, but never actually read. I mean, sorry, the grace piece that's an interview in babe.net. Right. Um, a lot of people didn't even read it before they responded. And they were like, or oh, they only read the first reaction to it. That Yes, absolutely. And, you know, like you said, maybe you could talk about this, but when you read it, like you, you kind of thought like, well, that's how a date is or what were your thoughts on it? Uh, so not for me. Okay. And, and I, I know I keep saying this uh, and it sounds like I'm defensive, but I've, I've, I was raised, despite being raised in a very like uh, fundamentalist home, I was raised with this utmost respect and fear of women. Oh, absolutely. Um, like I don't, <laughs> I don't touch, I don't ask <laughs> until something is offered. Reading it, it did ring as this is just how you get laid. This mm-hmm. is the standard courtship ritual for people, you know, in this scene, meaning the like the dating scene in general. Uh, this is what guys are supposed to do, and it's what women expect. It's what women are taught to defend themselves against. Mm-hmm. It read like it was against the grain of what I was told was normal. Mm-hmm. It. I mean, I, just to like personalize it, it read like a lot of dates in my twenties, sure. um, and uh, it, and I, I, as a person who fairly openly dates multiple genders, like it read like every, not every, but a lot <laughs> of the dates that I've had with um, cisgender straight men, and and honestly, I because of my own socialized conditioning read them as the normative experience. Like, you know, at one point she says, can we slow things down? I don't have sex on the first date. And his response is, I'll pull you another glass of wine. And then it is a second date. And like, I mean, that that's a real thing that happens. And I think what's really horrifying is that it's, it's normal. And each of them experience that moment totally differently. Sure. And, and that's the thing that I want. I'm interested in, in exposing and interrogating with people, especially men in my life, like what is normal and what isn't normal. And I think it's, it's really interesting how many times in the story, like the discussion of like, let's slow down is discussed and that that's not taken as an example of, of a woman feeling uncomfortable. But at the same time, we don't teach sexual consent and comprehensive sexual health education in K through 12 schools in the United States. And so even having dialogues that look like enthusiastic sexual participation, uh, 
we don't know how to do that unless like you're a sexual health advocate, you know? And I think that really that's what this story exposes for us. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I do think it's interesting. I think the I should just say, I think the babe.net piece just wasn't, it wasn't good writing and it, um, and it could have. I think that's universally agreed yeah, upon. Yeah, it could have interrogated this farther. And I do think that it actually upheld some racialized stereotypes of Asian American men. And so in many ways, it exposes to us a lot of existing um, normative violent behaviors or as like the author bell hooks would suggest imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy because it's everything happening at the same time and like you pointed out like we know a lot of these names now but it's everyone like i think the reason that most people don't know tarana burke started this in 2007 is because she's an activist and a woman of color but we know who Alyssa milano is and similarly we know the harvey weinsteins and we know the aziz ansaris and we know these these people who play a really fundamental role in media culture, but it was really critical. I think one of the most amazing activist things that happened in response to the Me Too movement was the 2018 uh, Golden Globes where Monica Ramirez, who's the National Farm Workers Women's Alliance um, activist, was at the Golden Globes to talk about how um, migrant women and undocumented women experience gender-based violence and they can't do anything about it because they experience so many simultaneous oppressions. And that for me is like where we should be going with this discussion, if that makes sense. It, it does. It's a lot. Yeah, like, it is. Yeah. Like you said, like the uh, when when you hear something, I, I can't remember how you phrased it, but w when you hear something you need to learn, it makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. And every time I've been in a discussion about something First of all, I have the habit of uh, of stating questions as hypotheses, meaning okay. to most people they sound like statements, and that angers people when my statement, which is actually a question, but when my statement is wrong, conversations get heated, and uh, I walk away feeling nothing but uh, distressed and angry. Usually, though, after a week or two, uh, my anger around that conversation will disappear and I'll be able to realize where where I'd gone wrong and what the actual information was that made me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot of people aren't great at this. Reflection? Um, no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that said, it's... Uh, it, it, the conversations can get very heated very quickly and... Uh, I, I don't know. I have no idea what it's like to be a woman trying to explain to a man what the problem really is. Well, you know, so I think two things. If I have to think about like at its bare roots what Me Too is and try to um, translate that when I'm having a difficult dialogue about it, I just directly say like it's about making survivors feel like they're heard and empowered. And so if we start there, it's not immediately about blaming anyone. It's right. about making people feel safe. And, um, and I, yeah, I think I, 
at its bare roots, there's nothing negative about the t- conversation. And I actually really appreciate that there are people, specifically men, who are willing to have that conversation. And I've had these difficult conversations, as we've talked about. Um, uh, one of the great things about the concept of empowering survivors is asking men who have been uncomfortable with this discussion and women, because women totally play an active role in sexism too. I mean, they consent to it, not all, but some do. And so we have to recognize that. But it's saying, where do you want to be in this moment in history? Like, where do you want to be in relationship to the dialogue about rape and the changing sexual norms of our culture? And if you want to be like at the forefront of asking and reflecting, your response is going to be totally different. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, <laughs> because I had said that I had thought about this a lot beforehand, I will say that, uh, and it fits well with the tech discussion, that uh, as a single woman living in a rural area, I've decided to try out Bumble because it puts women um, in the position of power, as you point out, as far as um, getting to make a first move, maybe not getting unsolicited um, pictures of men's <laughs> genitalia. <laughs> And, and it's actually been really great for me as like a fairly uh, shy human being to be like, I'm doing this as gendered research. And um, <clears throat> one thing I found interesting is I have actually started most of the conversations um, with, with potential coffee dates with like, what is your response to the Me Too movement? And uh, that really makes it easy for me to decide whether or not coffee is going to make sense. But um <clears throat> It's interesting to me that several men have directly said, well, I think it's important and that women should always report rape. And that to me is actually like a complete lack of understanding of what's happening because because that's, again, that gendered communication difference. Like as a, as a person who has in the past been an anti-sexual assault advocate, like lot, there's a lot of reasons people can't report. And one of them is really because of victim blaming. And another one is because... You know, like the example with Monica Ramirez and the National Farm Workers Alliance, like lots of women are not in a place of safety around um, experiencing racism, around the possibility of deportation that like that reporting makes sense as the number one move for for sexual justice. And so that's been an interesting kind of conversation. But I think even more so the, the gendered communication around dating apps that I'm experiencing is the incessant, and I think maybe other listeners who use dating apps will find this interesting, the incessant ask for, like, send me more pictures. And I finally started asking, like, you have, like, access to four pictures of me. Like, why do you need to see more pictures? And um, specifically, like, cisgender men would say, like, oh, because I've gone on these dates and I've got there and the women don't look anything like it. And it just really, like, it's really horrible and it makes the date awful. And, and like, my response is, like, I'm on the internet looking up apps for dating safety, like, to make sure that, like, I don't go on one of these coffee dates or out for a drink and, like, experience sexual violence. And so it just has been, like, such a critical reminder of uh, Margaret Atwood, you know, who wrote The Handmaid's Tale, about, like, how she, she described one time, and I use this in class a lot, um, when she asked a male friend why men feel threatened by women, and they answered... They're afraid women will laugh at them. And when she asked a group of women why they feel threatened by men, they said, we're afraid of being killed. And so <laughs> it's really interesting how much this has anecdotally been the situation because it, again, is a reminder of the the vast gulf 
that has been created due to patriarchal socialization between men and women in discussions of dating. And I mean, I, I get that that's like tied to a heterosexist framework, but I think it also impacts, regardless of sexual identity, the way that we interact with each other. And we, we do interact with different gendered beings every day, regardless of work or, you know, yoga class or everywhere else. So what is your, uh, your final, um, or, or I'll say your current review of Bumble? Um, you know, I, I'm pretty old school, so I think I might be like removing myself from Bumble <laughs> sometime soon. But uh, I think I think anything that brings people together in new ways for new conversations can't be bad. And, you know, I think like early on when you said like the uh, call out culture that's happening in social media platforms around Me Too is uh, a byproduct of any type of communicative platform, including Bumble, including Tinder, including all of these different spaces. And uh, it really depends on what you're looking for. I don't know that that technology is going to be the fix-all for uh, heartbreak and love. <laughs> I feel like you should write a, a, a blog post that is a guide to how to judge the answer to a me too question so that people could use it as a screen uh like whether in like tinder chat or on a first date like you ask this question and then like basically a scorecard if they here are the words that should be red flags here are the words that indicate they're willing to have a conversation i feel like it would be a really good guide for people to print out and and just carry with them there is actually, Everyday Feminism did a piece a while back, like on intersectional dating. And it had things like, um, you know, if you're going on a date with a white person, like what are their responses to the Black Lives Matter movement and immigration reform? Um, if you're going on a date with, uh, with a man, what is their response to me too? So I think like I've definitely grown from some of those conversations. But it's also interesting because as as hopeful as I am for uh, accomplices and allies to marginalized people, I think those languages can be totally appropriated sure. <laughs> and, and totally have been, right? Yeah, well, if there's one thing I have learned through my life as a male, um, things like that that are written, and I'm not just talking about dating, but anytime someone offers a guide for avoiding something it's also giving the people perpetrating the secrets to avoid being avoided yeah it's very Foucauldian <laughs> for me that that pertains more to like um uh security uh when people are like this is how you keep your data safe I read it as these are the things that people are going to do to stop you from getting to their data um it's, it's nefarious, I'm sure, but yeah, I can see there's a there's two sides to all of these um, appropriation of language. So, aside from Bumble, are, I, I won't dig further into the uh, the online dating. But uh, aside from Bumble, are what else do you have to say about online dating apps in general? 
Oh, that's a great question. Um, because I just got done doing a teaching unit on it. Um, <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Um, in my lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer studies course, uh, we just did uh, reading and analysis of Grinder because uh, for the straight folks listening, uh, Tinder was totally modeled off of Grinder, which was um, an app made for by um, men looking to hook up, and which is, I mean, liberating in itself and fine, but what we looked at is uh, a lot of the stereotypes and uh, overt racist statements that are made in these spaces and how not only do we normalize sexual violence in, you know, straight-ish uh, hookup sites, but there's also tons of racism and classism in and, and ableism in, in other marginalized communities. So specifically like anti-black racism and anti-Asian um, racism uh, has happened in, in Grindr. So I think, you know, it's just like your statement about, about how you can appropriate anything. Anyone can access a space and use it. And it really depends on um, how you're using that space and the kind of conversations you're having with people in those spaces. Give me some kind of definition about this racism in dating apps. Oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to remember the author's name right now, but uh, it's something that's been talked about probably like the last, uh, when Grindr came out, like maybe eight years ago. But uh, people saying things like hashtag no yellow or um, interested in, in black men and like creating some hyper-sexualized, racialized fantasies around certain people's bodies, which obviously exist in um, heterosexist spaces as well. Sure. So yeah. here, here's a question. And honestly, just looking for a response. Um, in When you're talking about especially apps that are pretty much for hooking up, mm -hmm. people have sexual preferences. Those pressure, those preferences might be racial. Is it wrong to say this is exactly what I'm looking for and this is what I'm not? Wouldn't that make mm -hmm. for a better hookup? Well, I guess a lot like our discussion about gender based communication and how it impacts uh, what we do and don't do uh, when we interact with one another in the attempts for sexual experiences. Um, I would say that it's not so much preference as it, again, is a socialization and product of the culture that we're in. So, like, deep racist stereotypes of people's genitalia and bodies have a long history in colonial violence. And so it shouldn't be a, it shouldn't be a shock when we see those um, stereotypes. I mean, it should be offensive, but when we see them and hear them, those are actually um, cultural productions of our socialization. One of my favorite books is the feminist porn book, which is um, sex workers and sex scholars writing together. And uh, in the book, I mean, the introduction to the feminist porn book is about not shaming sexual desires, but also simultaneously investigating where those sexual desires come from. Um, and I think, I mean, that's a whole nother conversation about about the response of the second wave to to pornography and to sexual liberation and autonomy. But it's really interesting to think about how our own sexual behaviors are dictated so much by the very things that we've been taught historically. It's also terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that that is something I, I would be intrigued to uh, research further. Like I've always said, 
uh, you know, for myself that the way that I see people, it's okay if that's different from who I'm sexually attracted to. Uh, without I, without having to dig into why, for for me, sexuality it's kind of a an is what it is place. So I'm not sure where to go with that. Well, I have a lot of thoughts. And it's like <laughs> it's like an entire 16 week class in intro to LGBT studies. But um, <laughs> but you know, if I specifically talk about <clears throat> marginalized sexual identities. Um, and as a person who identifies as queer, like I myself do, um, I oftentimes think about like questions that I was asked when I was coming out. And, and I mean, they're questions that all the people I know who have come out experience, like, were you born bisexual? Were you born gay? Were you born straight is really a question. And so that to me exposes like one of the power dynamics of sexuality in our culture. And I find it interesting because there really isn't a end all to be all in the conversation about whether or not our sexuality is um, choice or birth, because both of them um, are problematic pitfalls that uphold larger existing structures of oppression. If that, like, I mean, Nazi Germany deeply believed in eugenics, which included the uh, rounding up in gay, of gay and lesbian people um, in, in that process. I mean, that's where the pink triangle comes from because it was believed that there was something biologically wrong with gay and lesbian people. And then if we think about that like, concept of choice, the idea that we can socially police people's sexual behaviors and when they are LGBTQ, um, then automatically it's dictated as a choice of oppression rather than a recognition of a society as oppressive, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. I feel like, yeah, I, I, I will need a whole 16-week course to fully comprehend, but I will accept it for now. Okay. Um, so back to the Me Too movement. Can I, can I talk about the French example really quick? Uh, yeah, please do. Okay, yeah. Um, I when we had our, our first conversation about this, one thing I was really excited about is that Me Too, like all transnational feminist movements, has translated to different languages and different ideas to encompass, you know, multiple social movements. And one thing I found really interesting is that French women um, are using out your pig. And <laughs> I find that like a really great way to, again, much like the hashtag Me Too, to end patriarchal silence. Like, so rather than put the shame on women for the experiences they've had or the shame on victims, um, that they have access to outing someone if they feel necessary. Aside from the, uh, the, who gets the blame based on, you know, the, the semantics of a hashtag, do you think the more aggressive nature of the French version makes a difference? Um, <clears throat> there's been a lot of backlash to it. Um, the Guardian has has written about this quite a bit, and I think that one of the main backlashes is because it's it is like you said, it's it's more direct, and it also is about actually outing a perpetrator. And actually, you know, I think it's important to recognize too that one of the one of the flaws about call out culture, including this example is that it doesn't recognize that 
a lot of people who perpetrate violence are also victims themselves of past violence, which leads to these really unhealthy cycles of violence. And I'm not letting anyone off the hook of accountability, but also recognizing that that these are pretty deep conversations that have been structurally created for long, long time before the people that are using this language, that it's probably going to be a long conversation. Yeah. So I, I, to, to that end, kind of, um, I have had this experience talking to um, older people more recently, people that in the past I've had very frustrated conversations with because they were still in the angry phase, but even older and even super fundamentalist uh, conservative people are able at this point to have a conversation about their own histories and how, you know, these problems have existed and how this has been normalized. And it's been super heartening for me to be able to see even the people I least expected to uh, be able to change or to be able to even talk about this kind of thing mm-hmm. have been coming around. And I do I do attribute it to the the massive coverage and the saturation that the Me Too movement has gotten. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, Tarana Burke's own analysis of it has been great because she said it's more than a hashtag, it's a movement. And um, I think it's given us a new critical language and it's going to it's going to continue that those discussions, just like the first time that rape culture became really a mainstream language, it gave people language for what they were experiencing and how they felt. And that anytime we have access to language and new knowledge production, we can, we can do better with it. Yeah. Um, so last question on the me too topic, where do you see the, where do you see the movement going? What is the, uh, what are the uh, pitfalls and and kind of best possible scenarios for it at this point? Hmm. I don't know that I have like a, um, a, a really articulate answer, but I, I would say that I think moving forward, it it's actually momentum to create a large scale movement that is addressing um political sexual violence, uh, you know, like I mentioned, the current political era is really a large reason as to why we're seeing this moment now. But I also, um, I think like for every action, there's also a response. Um, it's concerning to me that the people that are angry about it can shut down and suggest like, now everyone just claims to be a victim. And I think that's so deeply offensive and undermining to the experiences of survivors. So one of my biggest concerns when this started, because I saw it as a good thing, uh, like I wanted this to happen, even if, you know, people that I loved were taken down. Um, One of my concerns was what if uh, someone makes an accusation and it turns out to be politically motivated, it turns out to be Mm -hmm. false, um, uh, petty or anything like that. And I've been kind of amazed that nothing has yet. I do think that could be a death knoll because people would seize that and be like, see, it isn't fair. You can just go accusing anyone and you can't just believe every single woman. But it hasn't happened. So statistically, uh, 
and this is data that I use in the classroom, it's uh, less than 4%, it's 2 to 4% um, of sexual assault allegations that are, are deemed to be false. And that's less than the amount of people who are like making uh, false insurance claims. <laughs> and like, and that is concerning to me because I see that as, um, I see it as a part of the rape culture where we victim blame because we'd rather believe that sexual violence doesn't exist than accept the, the complete pervasive reality of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I absolutely, it's, it's concerning. Even my own thoughts concerned me, but, um, yeah, it's that, that statistic, the, uh, two to 4%. That's very telling. Cause why would someone lie? Yeah. Like, what do you gain? Uh, oftentimes what you gain is uh, a society that's going to blame you for your own experience. And you're going to, um, you know, like, I mean, look at this moment. I should, we should definitely address this but this moment couldn't exist without um anita hill and um you know just how powerful she was and look at how society treated her for coming forward with her claims of sexual harassment and it was just uh, it was a really silencing moment for a lot of victims because she was treated horribly yeah well i mean if you look back through politics there have been scandals Mm -hmm. But they didn't they didn't have the I, I honestly believe social media made it possible because back with Monica Lewinsky and Anita Hill, you basically you, you heard uh, a commentator's perspective on it. And then you talked about it among your friends and then it died. Mm -hmm. And now we have something where it doesn't matter what pundits and commentators have to say. Uh people in mass have as large a voice, yeah. which can be horrible, but it can also be extremely productive. Well, I think uh, that's a great point, too, with um, the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, Black Lives Matter as, you know, it's it's really painful uh, as a it's painful to think that we live in a society that the most basic of claims has to be made. But access to technology has at least given more resources and um, an access to knowing the systemic reality of white supremacy. And Ta-Nehisi Coates, you know, made a really great point when he was talking about Black Lives Matter and how accessible at this point in time um, black pain is and the reality of brutality against black folks in America. And he said the camera, um, the cameras knew the brutality isn't. And, um, it's really very interesting the way that technology can both facilitate access to understanding, but like our own conversation, it doesn't necessarily mean that society changes with it or even our viewpoints of it. That was an excellently planned segue into the next topic. Okay. Well done. Thanks. So, so one of the other things that you focused on recently is prison abolition. Mm -hmm. What is prison abolition? That is a great question. Um, <clears throat> so uh, right now I'm teaching a class called Queer Theories and Politics, and our emphasis is on queering abolition and, and really looking at uh, LGBT people and their experiences in prison and their scholarship about undoing the uh, prison industrial complex. And so prison abolition, what I really build my framework from is Angela Davis's work, who is, um, you know, past political prisoner, uh, 
prolifically uh, published in the area of prison abolition. And uh, she really builds her analysis from the abolition of slavery and examining uh, the contemporary prison industrial complex in the United States. To give number to that, uh, the U.S. makes 5% of the world population, yet 25% of the world's prison population. And um, if you go to the roots of a problem, the structural roots of a problem, what you find is that you can't make a system that is bore out of caging people and specifically sexual violence and, um, and enslavement and racism, and you can't make that system, quote, good. And so abolition really comes from the concept of going to the roots and abolishing a system that is deeply unjust to recreate alternatives, or as a lot of queer activists refer to it as transformative justice. Yes. I'm going to, I'm going to inject my own history. Okay. Um, and, and I won't, I won't go on at length, but so, um, I began to be aware of the, the prison industrial complex, uh, in my teens. I, uh, I, I did cop watch, do you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, going out and just videotaping every, uh, interaction between officers and especially, uh, black people. Mm-hmm. And um, began to see, even in Minnesota, which definitely has its racism. Actually, but- yeah. To give you a number on it, um, Wisconsin is is fiftieth uh, and Minnesota forty ninth in the wealth gap and access to education between white and black citizens. So yeah, we're up there. <laughs> Wait, fiftieth and forty ninth out of fifty states? Yes. So am I reading that inversely? Like we have the highest? We're well, Wisconsin is 50th and Minnesota is the 40, 49th. Okay. The highest gap. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. But yep. anyway, so I I was uh by the time I was 17, I was fascinated with anarchism. I became a true anarchist in my 20s. Um and part of the anarchist movement, one of the common anarchist symbols is the Black Cross. Mm-hmm. And upon research, I learned about uh, Bolshevik prison movements to uh, free all prisoners. Mm-hmm. And this was associated with the, the Black Cross with the, the fist on top. And um, I, I at first my first reaction to that was, wait, we need prisons. We, we need to, you know punish. And uh, it wasn't until I was able to separate a justice system from a prison system and see how capitalism was driving a system that then crossed over into the judicial system to basically supply a capitalist endeavor in caging people, which very much is the definition of slavery, uh, or at least the root of the slave trade. Um, and then you look at the disproportionate numbers and I, I've been anti-prison ever since. Um, Mm -hmm. so this is a conversation that I'm very curious to hear from someone who actually with academic credentials in the area, what would you say the, uh, the most, uh, uh, achievable goal would be for, uh, a prison abolition movement? Well, I think that 
with every large scale um, goal of a social movement, you have to have small steps in between, obviously. And so like one of my really dear friends uh, works with the Books to Prisoner Project out of Seattle. And she always says, um, I do this work because I believe in reform to make the lives of inmates better in the now with the ultimate goal towards abolition. And so starting with that point, I think it's always useful to, to start to make a blueprint for what change would look like. And so, I mean, it, it's a lot like the Me Too movement in the sense that it starts with like really uh, community organizing in responses to things. So like, let me give you an example, like strategically and locally. I work with young kids of color in the school district, hearing their stories about their interactions of disproportionate suspension and interactions with an armed police officer in the schools. That to me is um, one of the many moving operations of making an argument against the increased policing and criminalization of kids, which lends itself to a school to prison pipeline, which fuels the prison industrial complex, which as you point out, has a capitalist endeavor. Does that make sense a little bit? Absolutely. Okay. Um, and it's actually in the Black Lives Matter platform is to end the war on black people. And one of those really important stances is child advocacy and addressing the school to prison pipeline. Right now in the United States, the ACLU reports that um, black children are three times more likely to be suspended, which increases the rate of juvenile delinquency, which increases the rate of later on incarceration. And so starting locally always gives me, I guess, the ability to see that a larger structural change can come later on. Because I, I can't make abolition happen right now in a town of 22,000 sure. people, but I can um, work to make sure that that the community I live in um, isn't actively investing in the punitive um, punitive uh, nature against against kids in schools. Sure. Yeah. Well, and uh, to go up against the systems that are in place to prop up this institution. Yeah, you know, this actually will probably be interesting to your listeners, but um, I was just talking with my my friend, um, her name is uh, Michelle Dillon, about how um, some of the work that she's doing for advocacy um, for prisoners. And she was telling me that under the Trump administration, the changes with the FCC have had some of the most drastic outcomes to making prisoners' lives even more difficult. Really? And yeah. And uh, what is the chair of the FCC? I don't remember his name. He's a douchebag. Okay. But yeah. yeah, that's an accurate statement. <laughs> So um, prior to the current chair, there was a woman in place who prison um, activists or prison solidarity activists will say had been working with in order to address the complete privatization of communication for prisoners in which there's a completely unregulated market and where people could come in and charge exponentially in private prisons for for prisoners to call their family. And we're already talking about the injustices of classism and racism that impact and lack of educational access that impact prisoners. And then on top of it, you know, just tons of debt for their families just to hear their parents' voices, which is just inhumane to begin with. And now with the new transition to the current chair, all of the strides to regulate that market and make it more friendly for families who have incarcerated loved ones 
have completely been undermined and they've rolled the clock backwards. And I think these are the examples of ways that policies are are impacting um, our ability to move towards a revolutionary imagination of political of uh, prison abolition. Can you send me a link to Michelle Dillon and and any reference to this uh, FCC regulation and uh, yes. prison welfare? Yes. That is, I had no idea. This is new. <laughs> and this all came about last week. Um, Michelle Skyped into my class. So thank you, technology. You make it possible. <laughs> um, Michelle Skyped into my class because um, I've been teaching a class uh specifically on on queer prisoners experiences now for four years and this semester i'm uh partnering with the lgbt books to prisoner project which is based out of madison um and my students will be going to write letters to incarcerated lgbt prisoners and packing books for them because things that happen um, a lot of queer prisoners are put into solitary confinement for their quote own protection, but it's um, obviously, again, um, a violence against LGBT people and a violence against prisoners. But it's also, um, it's getting really concerning about what books can get into prison. And this is an example of limiting knowledge production as a way to um, systematically uh, dehumanize a population of people. So some people, or maybe you had even seen this, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, which argues that prisons and the prison industrial complex are specifically creating a second-class citizenry of um, black men and Latino men is her main analysis. Um, lots of states are attempting to ban that from making its way into private prisons because um, <clears throat> it limits the access of language that prisoners have about their own life experience it depoliticizes, yet simultaneously in a lot of the places trying to um, cut access to this book, Mein Kampf is available. Huh. Like to give you like an, an idea of what that looks like. And uh, one of the things that are argued about access to books in prison, which I find really interesting, is that it's always about limiting prisoners' access because it could, you know, uh, politicize them. Because some of the most important social movements in our world have been with prisoners and we don't hear about them. Um, you know, your own example at the beginning with your tattoo is uh, is an example of that. But I, I just finished reading uh, Blood in the Water about the Attica prison uprising. And, you know, this is a historical text really examining um, who the prisoners got their political motivations from in order to take part in a worker strike and a worker slowdown. And, and it was around, I mean, complete inhumane conditions, which were like lack of access to toilet paper, which interestingly enough, you know, we go on to media culture and Orange is the New Black is trying to show us that these are issues that women are experiencing in uh, private prisons. And, and we're seeing simultaneously the growth of prison organizing, but we're not hearing about it in a mainstream context. So if you if you want to hear about that, you have to go to like Democracy Now in Al Jazeera. Yeah. All <clears throat> right. So can 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 you commit right now to a second episode to get into the myriad topics we didn't get to go into depth on? I absolutely can do that. All right. Um I'm sorry, I'm taking notes. So in order, in the interest of time, we're going to switch to the top three picks. Um, oh, yeah. 
these can lead to more discussion depending on how uh, topical they are. So hopefully we can continue this. I I will warn you in advance, mine are not at all topical. Okay. You can choose not to say anything about them and move on to something else. (laughs) I wrote down like a handful of things that you sent me, so you're good. Okay. So yeah, pick, pick three things and go ahead with your first one. We'll go back and forth one at a time. Okay, Lainey Zumas's um, Red Clocks. Tell me about it. It's a dystopian book about um, abortion becoming illegal in the United States, and it's really interesting around fetal citizenship. Wow. That alone is going to make my three picks seem horrible. It just came out, and um, her first book, The Listeners, was incredible, and you should totally check it out because I know your style of music, and it's about her, um, her maybe like her 20s being in a, a woman's punk band. And it's awesome. It, uh, she works in the writing style of defamiliarization. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't even, I, I can't, uh, I can't dig into this because I'm unfamiliar with both. But what is defamiliarization? It's like where you take a really common subject and then write so much that it becomes obscure. And, um, yeah, I really enjoy her writing style. Um, you should definitely check it out. All right. Well, uh, my first pick is, I'm almost embarrassed, but um, I've been doing some more home recording. I used to do a lot, and then I kind of dropped it for a decade, and I've gotten back into it. And one of the things that was bugging me was not having a mixer. Um, cause That's fair. I started on a four track, and... Mixing with my mouse, just it wasn't cutting it. So I picked up the Akai. I've never known how you say it. Akai, the uh, MIDI mix, and it's a it's a physical console that you can hook into any digital audio program. Um, it's designed to work with Ableton. If you use it with Logic, you don't. It doesn't actually light any of the lights up, but you still get physical sliders out of it, and you can feel. <laughs> the track and I find it way better. Plus I can mix more than one track at the same time. Um, so that's kind of my pick. So I'm going to actually change one of my top picks away from two books to up to a kitchen implement, because when you said mixer, I was really excited because <laughs> I have on here, my sunbeam heritage stand mixer in lime green and it matches my retro personality. And I really like making, um, bread. So Okay, so all right, I'm curious about this. I need to look up how much that cost. It was a gift, so I have no answer. <laughs> I I will have an answer in seconds, thanks to the internet. Uh, it's about a. Well, I guess it depends on which model you get, but you can get it for between ninety and one hundred and seventy dollars. Okay. So whoever gave it to you, now you know how much they love you. Oh, my um, mother, she loves me. <laughs> no, this it, I've I've looked at mixers for a long time. I've read a lot of reviews. Um, right now, uh, basically, have access to a handheld mixer, uh, and a stand mixer would be great. I've always wanted one with one of those like orbital, like bread hook. Yes, uh, that 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 has been. I, I don't bake a lot of bread, but the that orbital kind has always been intriguing to me. This is more affordable than most of the ones that I thought that one would work. 
It's so beautiful. I love it. <laughs> and it matches my green kitchen. That's excellent. Do you own a, um, a immersion blender? I don't. I have to say, I, I always thought they were, they looked like a bad idea. They're not. They'd be great for making macaroni and cheese because I feel like I always end up like dude. It's great it for yeah. it's it's great for making sauces, uh, just about anything that you would want to blend in a pot while you're cooking it. Also great for morning smoothies if oh. you get the right kind. It, it, they're actually super handy. Easier to clean than a regular blender for smoothies and stuff too. Nice. Yeah, I'll, I'll whatever whichever one I'm using right now, I'll I'll add it to the show notes, but I can't remember. Okay, so my second pick is going to be Tracker, uh, T R A C K R. Um, I started with Tile, uh, like Bluetooth locators that you can put on small objects to be able to find them, such as my wallet and my keys, and I like the Tile because. With my phone, I could make it uh, beep, and it was easy <laughs> to locate then. And I could also double tap any tile, and it would make my phone beep, so I could find my phone. So whatever whatever I had on me would help me find everything else. Uh, and then I found out that when a tile's battery dies, you have to buy a new tile, and they're not cheap. Um, I then switched to trying out the Pixie, which I happen to really like, uh, it, it, it uses three different kinds of technology to make it possible to um, spin your phone around and use augmented reality to see exactly where what you're looking for is, but it couldn't beep, which was frustrating because sometimes the easiest thing to do is just make something loud. Uh, so I just got trackers and mm -hmm. they really, they only beep. <laughs> they, they're not great at like, walk this direction to find your thing, but... Uh, beeping is important and the beauty of the tracker uh, aside from being cheaper they also have replaceable batteries so i'm kind of sold on this right now that's my pick nice i've actually recently saw a tile so i understand what you're talking about <laughs> perfect <laughs> um my final pick is my favorite album of all time and it's a hum and that's h-u-m you'd prefer an astronaut from 1995 and my favorite song is why i like the robins i have never never heard of this oh my god your mind is gonna be blown it's like science meets like post-rockish so and like devo i i'm i'm humiliated to admit i have no idea what that is <laughs> you, wh whip it devo <laughs> yeah no sorry your basic math rock wow Wow. Oh, okay. Well, okay. I'll, yeah. Every, everyone listening is having the same reaction I am right now. I'm young. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay, but you haven't heard of hum, which says a lot more about you in my mind. Okay. Then we're even. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. And the title, like you prefer an astronaut. That's amazing. I do love that. Uh, one of my favorite song titles of all time was... Um, Oh, what was the band? Uh, I just, like, it was in my head and I just blanked on it. But it was, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're floating in space. Okay. Now it's going to, oh, how can I forget? Spiritualized. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard spiritualized? 
I've heard of it. You it's know, like, absolutely yeah. not math rock. In fact, they put out an album called A and E that was the uh, the main songwriter for the band had written all the songs, and they just showed up to the recording studio with none of the uh, other band members having ever heard the songs at all, and then just recorded first takes. That that part. Uh, where where the band's figuring it out and they're they're fooling around that you know they're playing with new bass lines and stuff and they basically took that like initial creative energy and they made an album out of it that was amazing but uh ladies and gentlemen we're floating in space what's from before that and i, I i'm gonna tack that onto your pick okay i like that and it's gonna take me a second to type that whole thing out in my notes i did get to see hum you know, like cause this album came out in 1985 in like 2010, maybe they like did a reunion show in Millennial Park in, in Chicago. And I got there like seven hours early and was in the very front and a drumstick hit my arm. It was pretty exciting. <laughs> and then I caught a guitar pick. <laughs> did you catch the drumstick? Did you get to keep it? No, the, this was the cool thing. So I went with a group of friends and I mean, we traveled from, I traveled from Washington. My friends traveled from uh, Massachusetts all just to go to the show. And we got there and we were like, I was probably like 20, well, yeah, 26, 20. Yeah. Somewhere around there. And they were in their early thirties. And then there was this group of like 18 year old kids and we were shocked that they even knew their music and they had driven there overnight from New Jersey just to see them. And so like when it hit my arm, one of them caught it and we thought that that was totally fair and awesome that they liked this music. So <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. All right. Uh, my last pick is a 100% silly iPhone app called hollow. H-O-L-O, as in hologram. Mm -hmm. And it's an augmented reality app that lets you put these various objects into whatever you're looking at and then take a video or a picture of it. And uh, for example, uh, there there's a, uh, a raccoon and various uh, modes of existence that you can... Uh, superimpose into any situation and then shoot a video of like walking around it. So you could, you know, say, put it in front of your dog while she's kind of just laying on the ground and then walk around it. Make it look like your dog is just actively ignoring a raccoon that is eating right in front of her face. Or you can do this guy with fairy wings sitting and eating popcorn and you can put him on like your coffee table while you're watching TV it's weird, it's stupid, and it's really fun. I like it. Yeah. All right. Well, so we're going to wrap up there. Um, honestly, we, we absolutely have to schedule part two of this. Uh, there's so much more knowledge I want to hear from you. Um, but thank you for being here this time. And you can be found... Uh, I'm going to double check all of the social media links. We'll get those into the show notes, but you're on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. So check the show notes for those. Uh, is there a website that you'd want to be reached at? Actually, I don't think, I think we just are redoing our website on the university. So I don't know that I have one right now. That's fair. All right. Yeah. Anywhere else you want to mention that people should check out? Bumble. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's what I have. (laughs) No, no one has ever tried that one before. Cool. Um, I'm original. (laughs) For sure. Um, and all right, I'm Brett Herbstra. I'm at TT uh, Scoff on Twitter, Facebook, everywhere. Um, I am at BrettHerbstra.com, and you can find Systematic on Twitter at SYSTMCast. Uh, also, go to signup.systemcast.net to join the Slack community, talk to other listeners and guests. And uh, that, yeah. That's that's me. <laughs> so, Mary Jo, thank you for for doing this. Uh, I know you're not a, a super podcasting person. This was a pleasure. I had a great time. Thank you. Um, I will I will be in touch. And thanks everyone for listening. Bye.